if you fly from America to Australia solo in a helicopter, you can fly under the Harbour Bridge. And so they said that and they gave me approval to. And so I got that approval to fly under the Harbour Bridge quite legally. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. It amazes me the different backgrounds of listeners just like you that listen to the show. Paul G messaged me through the show's Facebook page this afternoon. He's not actually in aviation, but he dearly wishes he was. He listens to the episodes while driving a dozer in Western Australia, and he sent through some photos of his machines. And one of them looks like the the size of a, a small house. And that really comes back to the goal of these episodes in the show. You know, what we're trying to do is capture some of these stories and lessons from around the helicopter world that get shared around you know, crew areas or in the hangar over a few drinks at the bar. And there are some really amazing stories and experiences out there. But what normally happens is they don't get shared beyond that small initial audience. And given that our industry is so spread out, and in many cases in fairly remote areas, we just don't have a good way of packaging up and preserving or passing on the tips and lessons and sometimes the, the folklore or the mindsets that go with it. So in some small way, this show is a, a vehicle for that. And it's a real thrill for me to be involved and to get a chance to talk to some of these amazing people and have you know people like Paul let me know that they're listening to it while they're, they're driving a, a dozer. This is episode 47 of the Rotary Wing Show. And our main interview today is Dick Smith, the first person to fly a helicopter solo around the world, plus a bunch of other aviation firsts and records. Before I give you a little bit more about background on Dick, I want to acknowledge and thank several of you that have left reviews on iTunes. So there's one here from Lodestar in the US. Mick hosts wonderfully eclectic rotary wing professionals with a fun interview style that shows his passion for both helicopters and those who share that passion. I listen to episodes 1 to 45 in about two months and look forward to more. Thanks, Mick. And CQ Rocket in Australia writes... A great insight into the rotary world, the people, the places, the events, the gear. Great work. And one here from Chris JS1767 in the US writes, Thank you for performing this valuable service for the helicopter community. As you said in your opening episodes, a small community, you can learn a lot from the experiences of your fellow pilots. And the last one here from Tried It Once, uh, also from the US. After finding this podcast, I've referred it to many of my helicopter pilot friends, I listen to these while at work and on long drives. Outstanding job and I look forward to each new interview. So look, thank you, gang. It's it's really appreciated and those reviews really do help promote the show visibility in iTunes so that we can get other people to find it and again, you know, share those stories around and keep them circulating in the industry. So on to our guest for today's episode. For Australians, Dick Smith is someone that doesn't need too much of an introduction. You know, he's been very active in a number of areas. And for such a long time that most people in Australia would at least know who he is, but I'm sure many have no idea of you know the range of his aviation exploits. For the 
sake of our international audience, though, I'll give you a bit more of an extended version of Dick's bio. Dick and his wife Pip built up and sold two quite large businesses here in Australia, so Dick Smith Electronics and Australian Geographic. As you'll hear about coming up, Dick was the first person to fly solo around the world in a helicopter, which included the first crossing of the Atlantic in a helicopter. Then later on, he's the first person to fly a helicopter around the world from east to west against the prevailing winds. He was the first person to fly a helicopter to the North Pole, and he's also flown around the South Pole in a fixed wing. In the hot air balloon world, he was first to complete a non-stop crossing of the Australian continent and pilot a balloon from New Zealand to Australia. In 1986, he was awarded the Australian of the Year, and last year in 2015, he was awarded the Companion of the Order of Australia for Community Services and Devotion to Flying, awarded for eminent achievement and the merit of the highest degree in service to Australia or humanity at large. And that is the Companion of the Order of Australia, the second highest appointment in the Orders Systems or the Australian Honours Systems. In 1992, he was awarded the United States Lindbergh Award after Charles Lindbergh. The award is given annually to individuals whose work over many years has made significant contributions towards the Lindbergh's concept of balancing technology and nature. And a couple of the other notable awardees there are Harrison Ford, Bert Rutan, David Suzuki, Neil Armstrong, Edmund Hillary, James Doolittle, and Jacques Cristeau. In 1992, Dick was the chairman of the board of the Civil Aviation Authority here in Australia. And then again in 97 to 99, he was a deputy chairman and chairman of the board of CASA, who's our regulatory authority here in Australia. At the time we go to air in May 2016, Dick has recently attended an industry meeting in Tamworth about the state of the general aviation regulation here in Australia. So we get a chance to talk about that too. Dick, thank you very much for being able to chat to us. I met you very briefly, I think in possibly nine, or sorry, 2003, there was a safety conference on the Gold Coast where you were a guest speaker. And, you know, up until then, I didn't really know too much about your helicopter background, but you spoke then about, uh, you know, flying around the world and uh, the, the one story you told about having to, to land on this cargo ship. Uh, so I thought if we've limited for time, we might uh, jump in and start off with that. If you could just give a little bit of background to the Around the World trip and, you know, how you got started into that. Yeah, certainly, Mick. Well, I started flying helicopters. Quite an interesting story. I started a little company called Dick Smith Electronics with $610 in 1968 and did quite well. And one day I found I had enough money made up so I could go and learn to fly. And in those days, it cost about $23 per hour for a Cherokee to fly a fixed wing, to learn to fly a fixed wing aircraft. And I got my fixed wing license and as the business did better, I bought myself a twin command sheet and then a beach baron. But I never really enjoyed flying fixed wing. I found that uh, if ever you saw something interesting, and that was hard because there was normally a wing below you, if you did see something interesting, there wasn't an airport nearby where you could land. And one day I was flying back from Tasmania in my baron. I was grounded at Narandra because I didn't have an instrument rating and the weather was bad. And a helicopter came in and landed at the airport and I walked over to the pilot and it was a Bell Jet Ranger and the weather was so bad, it was about 300 foot ceiling and, and I said to him, in fact he's a well-known pilot, Chick Barron, and uh, I said, 
I said, is this uh, an IFR helicopter? Can it fly in cloud? And he said these famous words. He said, no, Dick. He said, a helicopter can fly just beneath the cloud, and if ever the cloud gets too low, you just land and have a cup of tea with somebody. And I remember thinking, gee, that's my type of flying. So when I eventually got back to Sydney, I rang up Bell Helicopters, went for a demo flight with Channel 10, uh, Bob Wilson, and ordered my first jet ranger, then had to learn to fly it, and the rest is history. What do you remember, Dick, about the uh, that initial sort of flying process and you know learning to actually control a machine? Well, I found it incredibly difficult. In fact, I said to my first instructor, I'm just trying to give his name, he was the agent for the Hiller helicopters, and I decided I'd do the first to solo stage on a piston end machine, so I'd learned how to operate the throttle, and this was before the Jet Ranger arrived, and uh, we flew the helicopter up to my farm, which was a, a place called Ross Glen, just near Port Macquarie, and I'd built an airstrip there, it's still there, called the Camden Haven Airstrip, and he taught me to fly basically on that airstrip, and I was so incredibly hopeless, I couldn't hover the helicopter basically on the width of the runway, which must have been 100 metres, and it used to slide one way and then the other way, and the instructor would grab hold of it and just sit it there steadily, and, I, and so I'd take over, and once again it would slide further one way and then the other, and I remember saying to my instructor, are there some people who just can't learn to fly a helicopter? And luckily he lied to me and he said, no, no, everyone can learn to fly. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be right. And eventually, I think it took me about 15 hours to solo, and I was able to learn to fly. But since then, I've had some business friends of mine who've tried to learn and have never been able to master the skill. But anyway, I managed to get the solo stage with him. And I remember the solo flight, the airstrip was 3,000 feet long. So that's about half a mile, a bit over a kilometre, uh, nearly a kilometre long. And he, he he got out of the helicopter at one end of the airstrip and said, now I want you to do a circuit. So I did the circuit, but landed at the other end of the airstrip. I was so lack, lack confidence. And I landed at the other end of the airstrip and he had to walk nearly half a mile in quite cold, rainy conditions <laughs> to get back to the helicopter. And he said, oh, why didn't you come back and land near me? And I said, oh, I couldn't. <laughs> so that's how bad I was at solo stage. Fair enough. And, I mean, you did some pretty exciting stuff very early on. I don't know if you look back at the number of hours you had at the time and, and think, you know, what was I thinking? But you um, you flew Sydney to Lord Howe Return uh, in 1980. How many hours would you have had under your belt then? I think that would probably be a couple of hundred hours. But remember, I had Rick Howell, Richard Howell, who was the National Parks helicopter pilot with me, very experienced pilot. So that really gave me some confidence flying over water. Of course, it wasn't much after that 1982 that I started my solo around the world flight. I think I'd done about 700 hours in choppers, and it was interesting because I was very inexperienced, but I consider myself a good risk manager, and I just ask advice, and I copy the success of others. I decided... I asked advice what was the most reliable helicopter in the world, and everyone said at the time it was the Bell Jet Ranger. So I bought one of those, and part of my risk management, I even went to the factory and we selected the engine well beforehand. They had all these engines which arrived from Allison, and we selected the one with the lowest temperature. And so that meant hopefully it was going to run cooler and be a bit more reliable. And then when the machine was going to be made, it was my second Jet Ranger, we put a notice on it this is going to attempt to fly solo around the world, please do good workmanship. And so it was might have been a special machine. 
And I saw some note there that you actually went across to the factory. Did you actually work on the machine yourself? or Well, well, hardly worked on it myself. Certainly, w- once it came out of the Bell factory and we had to fit the autopilot, I went to Field Tech Avionics at Kevin Nelms. I'm still in business at Meacham Field in, in Fort Worth. And uh, I worked on the helicopter with them because I'm a radio technician. That was my training. I'm not qualified, but I certainly was a radio ham and loved radio. And so I worked on the machine in fitting everything and also had to organize in the fitting of the tank because we designed and had the tank certified in Australia on my previous jet ranger, Mike India Sierra, which is still, I think I sold it to Adelaide and I think it's still the TV chopper in Adelaide, obviously with a different rego. And then with VHDIK, the new chopper, we put it on the Australian register in Fort Worth and I worked on getting the tank fitted and assisting the engineer do that. So what did it look like when you, when you launched off from you know any of the places as you were going along? Did you have you know jerry cans in the machine with you? Was it bladders, bag and food and things like that? What, what did the machine look like as you were actually lifting off? Well, you've got to understand, first of all, I was very inexperienced. And uh, I remember the, one of the first things, first of all, it did have a proper certified tank in the rear, about 90 US gallons. On top, it was a jet range that already had the extended range because the tank filler was higher to start with. And then on top of that, I put another 30-gallon tank when I had to do the shipboard landing when Russia wouldn't give me approval to land as it was the middle of the Cold War. So that meant I think I lifted eventually with 240 US gallons on board. But let me explain to you the very first day when I took off from Fort Worth, I taxied towards the runway because... In Australia in those times, helicopters had to operate from the runway and had to operate as a fixed-wing aircraft. And if you, say, flew into Sydney Airport, believe it or not, you'd be taxied out to the threshold of 1-6. There'd quite often be a 747 behind you, and then you'd be told clear for takeoff, and you'd go out and line up, in effect, over the huge keys on runway 1-6 and head off down the runway and then turn left or right and off you'd go. You were not allowed to operate anywhere other than the runway. Now, when, when, when I went to depart on the flight around the world, I remember taxiing and lifting into the hover and I was taxiing towards the runway and the controller at, at Meacham Field said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm a you know, solo helicopter around the world. I thought it was a big deal, Australian VHDIK, taxiing to runway 27 or whatever it was. And he said, but you're a helicopter. Why are you taxiing to the runway? And I thought, oh, that's very strange. And he said, just depart from where you are. And I remember thinking, Wow, how dangerous these Americans are. But it was only after flying right across the United States and then right across the UK and then right through the Middle East to Australia that I realised that Australia was out of kilt, that in fact we had no helicopter regulations and these concrete-minded bureaucrats within the Department of Aviation had just insisted that we were the safest in the world so no one must doubt anything we do. And that sort of started me on my reform process where I wanted to copy the best from anywhere in the world. And we'll definitely talk about regulation as we get towards the end there. But um, can you tell a story about the this container ship that you found and, and how you organised it and then the actual day of, of landing on the, on the ship? Yes, well, my plan was to fly solo around the world, so I published this document. Now, the reason no one had ever flown solo around the world in a helicopter is that you couldn't get across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Before, all the the around-the-world flights were done through Russia, the early ones, Wiley Post, 
um, they and, and they all went straight through the Soviet Union. But of course, the helicopter was sort of invented, say 1947, 48. It became, uh, you know, a universal machine. And by then, the Cold War started, and Western aircraft were not allowed to fly in the Soviet Union. Now, I'd always thought when I worked out my plan that I would eventually get approval to land. My plan was to get to Japan and then fly up into the Kamchatka Peninsula, one or two landings, and then across to Alaska. And I always thought I'd have that approval. But I published a document which showed my plan and said in the document, if I can't land in the Soviet Union, I'm planning to land on a ship between the two. Now, amazingly enough, when I left Fort Worth, there was an article in the local newspaper saying an Australian was going to become the first to fly a helicopter around the world. And Ross Perot Sr., the very the billionaire American computer um, uh, expert, he'd read this article and he immediately said, hold on, Americans are the first at everything. And he's pretty right when it comes to aviation. And so he quickly purchased a Bell Long Ranger and then with his got his son, who was quite a low-time pilot, Ross Perot Jr., and also a very experienced helicopter pilot from Vietnam, Jay Coburn, a Vietnam War veteran. And they headed off three weeks after me. Now, they looked at my plan in relation to the shipboard landing and thought that was really what I was going to do. In fact, I was mainly using it as bluff, and I thought in the end the Soviet Union would let me land. And so Ross Perot headed off, uh, around the world, when I was in at the, it got to got to England. I was told that Ross Perot was coming, and someone said, "Quick, head off, and you'll be first. And I said, "Well, I've never wanted to be first, and secondly, I'm going to be solo anyway, and that's different to two pilots. And also, Ross Perot's aircraft was being escorted by a Hercules, and they had a crew on board. And I thought, hold on, I'm trying to prove that helicopters can do long distances. That's really not the spirit." being escorted by Hercules the whole way around the world. It's sort of showing that helicopters need fixed-wing support, which I didn't think was so. So, uh, and, But then what happened was, because they accepted my shipboard landing, they actually ended up organizing a shipboard landing on a container ship. And I watched that with interest. I think they paid an absolute fortune for it, but it showed me that, oh, the shipboard landing's possible. And so... Six months later, when I eventually got to Japan, because I took my time flying around the world and waited for weather and did everything I could for safety, um, I managed to get hold of a container ship. And it was a different container ship called the Hogue Marlin that was traveling from, uh, northern, from Yokohama in Japan to Seattle. And three and a half days, I put some drums of fuel on board, made up a beacon a non-directional beacon out of some parts from Dick Smith Electronics, my business that I just sold, and used that as to direction find in on the ship and do my first and only shipboard landing and refuel and then two hours later take off and fly to to Alaska. Now, my memory of the story, again, at the safety conference when you were up and talking, you were saying, you know, you're heading out over this ocean, there was no way back. If the ship wasn't there, there was going to be a ditching in the ocean and looking for the ship. So can you just describe that, you know, the last two or three hours heading for the ship and, and trying to find it? Yeah, it was frightening. Look, first of all, to do the incredible distance, it was round about 1,300 nautical miles, 1,400 nautical miles in one day. That's a long way, little jet ranger. So I took off at about 3 a.m. from Kishiro in pitch darkness. Now, it was a VFR helicopter, but I remember flying from one landing light to the next landing light at the airport, 
and then there were no more lights and I just bored off, looked at the attitude indicator and bored off into the fog and headed towards the coast and eventually the dawn started to come up. So I got above cloud and I was flying about 2,500 feet above just total fog. They have in June, they have this incredible fog and I headed up the Kenchaki, up the sort of north of Japan and for about the first three hours I had to fly in the Russian buffer zone in the restricted area and the Japanese have said oh you'll have to go around that so I flight planned around it but I couldn't go around it because I didn't have enough range and I thought oh there's no way they'd shoot down an innocent helicopter interestingly enough three years three months later almost in the same spot they shot the Korean 747 the 007 jet down and killed everyone on board so if they'd actually known I was there they would have shot me down but I think the chopper was so small I turned the transponder off and kept low and just kept flying now about seven hours out I was talking to the ship I had a friend on board who was a ham radio operator so I was talking to him and he would turn on the non-directional beacon we made which consists of a little box with a, about an 800 kilohertz transmitter in it and hooked it up to a 12 volt battery and dangled the aerial over the ship, over the ship's crane. Now remember, this is years before GPS and uh, most of my flight was dead wrecking. I did have an Omega system, but it would every now and then work in reverse and tell you you had to go the opposite direction to the one you wanted to. And so I basically used that as a secondary backup and then dead wrecking for everything else. As I got to within a few hours of the ship, they called up and they said, oh, we're running to fog. You won't be able to land. Now, I had not enough range to get back to Japan, but I did have enough range to get into a volcano that I could see sticking out of the cloud. I would have had to land right up on the rim because it was sort of a 30-degree angle. And I managed to get onto a high-flying airline and, and gave them a pan message and said, look, I'm an Australian helicopter attempting to fly around the world. I'm trying to land on a ship, but the ship's run into fog. Can you get in touch with the authorities and say, I'm heading to Russia, and I'm, I'm going to try and land in Russia. And so I turned towards this island on the, the Kamchatka Peninsula, and about 20 minutes later, the ship called back and said, look, we've come into a bit of clear airspace. We're going to slow down. Do you want to give it an attempt? And I thought, do I ever? Because I knew for sure the Russians would confiscate my helicopter even if they didn't shoot me down because I would have been arriving there without any approval and I'd tried for six months to get approval and they said, no way. So I turned right and headed towards the ship. I remember descending down through the cloud and coming out at about a 1,000 feet and there was a group of orca whales in front of me and I looked at that as a good luck charm. I then saw the ship about 60 miles away, this little dot, and got closer and closer. Eventually landed on the ship, on the deck. Now, I'd made one error. I'd allowed one hour for refueling, and but the ship was rolling left and right and pitching up and down. And as most people who know jet ranges, the fuel tank is on the side. And so every time the ship rolled to the port, the fuel would come out of the filler and we couldn't put the full fuel in. So we'd have to put the cap back on and wait for the ship to roll back the other way. And what with that tank plus the two auxiliary tanks with the caps in the same place, we had to, it took two hours to refuel. And this gave me a tremendous problem because I thought if I take off now, I'm going to end up at, uh, at Shemya Island at the very end of the Aleutian chain after dark. And, and I just didn't like that idea, but 
eventually I did take off. Then I thought I had a headwind, but I'd misread the waves and I had a tailwind and eventually about 11 o'clock that night, just on Arctic twilight, I landed at Shemya at this Air Force base to be very lucky that I was alive. Wow. Did you do much night flying on the way around? No, virtually none. I did take off at Bali to get right through to Darwin in one day, but no, I'm, I'm a risk manager and I have been told that night flying, which of course you and your military experience would have to do. So you've got to understand one of the reasons I, I've done about, uh, I'm just trying to think, well, my flights around the world, five flights around the world and, and to the North Pole and I've flown in Antarctica and I've never even put a mark on an aircraft or even been late. And that's because my flying is the opposite end of the spectrum of what the military have to do. The military have to fly when it is dangerous. Whereas I would do the opposite. I'd do everything I can to fly when it was safe. So I did everything I could to organize flying in daylight. I did everything I could to try and fly when the weather was good. And that was one of the reasons I'm alive today. And it's one of the reasons in the five flights around the world, I've never even put a mark on an aircraft. Did you have a couple of close calls? Like, did you have any, uh, you know, malfunctions or emergencies? Oh, yes, I had some very frightening times. I mean, I owe my life to North American technology that it's so reliable. But yes, the whole time I had times when I thought if I can finish this particular day, I'll come up with some incredible excuse and put the helicopter into a container and ship it home. Uh, coming down through from the, the flight around the world was Fort Worth where I took it out of the factory and then across the Atlantic, the first solo rotary ring flight across the Atlantic. And when you consider Charles Lindbergh did the first fixed wing solo flight and then from England down to Australia and then Australia up to Philippines, Japan, Alaska and back to Fort Worth. Flights will between Greenland and Iceland, I got into the most atrocious weather with snowstorms and flurries and 50 knot uh, wind on the ocean with bits of icebergs being blown off. And I'm circling, no, not circling, weaving my way in between sort of snow flurries and getting getting more and more scared and thinking, look, I think I'll have to go back to Greenland because the weather was okay there. And I managed to call a high-flying airline and they said, look, we've checked Greenland, the weather's closed in, you won't be able to get back there. We suggest you go to Shannon. And I didn't even know where Shannon was. And eventually, it, it turned out it was an island. And I said, hold on, I'm in a helicopter. And the, the pilot came back, you're in a helicopter? And finally, Reykjavik was very bad weather. But eventually, just as I got to Reykjavik after about five hours in the air, the, there was a, light, a, a sunlight coming through and straight onto just onto the airport terminal. And I remember going in and landing and thinking, wow, I'm lucky to get away with that. When we looked at the documentary film I was making later, the editor said, look, I can't use that bit when you were going across the the Atlantic because there's a, a fault in the audio. The Something's wrong with it. So when I listened, it was actually a tremor in my voice. I was so frightened. I was talking to the camera to try and give myself some confidence and saying to the camera, look, if I have an engine failure now, I'll auto-rotate. We'll glide down to the ocean. It'll be about 30 seconds before the helicopter will overturn. I'll grab my my life raft and little tiny life raft and jump out the right-hand door. But looking down, thinking there's no way I'm going to last long in that ocean down there. It was at freezing point and it was just so frightening. I was scared. But having spent an hour having a cup of coffee at Reykjavik, I thought oh, I might just 
get as far as London and then stop the flight there. But And that's how the whole flight went. Uh, coming through Burma, I got into the terrible monsoons and it was like flying in a waterfall. In fact, I couldn't believe that a jet ranger would not flame out. And I wasn't game to turn, so I just kept looking at the attitude indicator about 100 feet over the water. And eventually I landed on a beach and the water was so colossal that it was coming out of the jungle and across the, the sand and it undermined the skids and so it started to turn the helicopter over. Oh, no. <laughs> Eventually I started the helicopter up and I thought I'll lift up the beach but went to 110% power, couldn't lift it off so I had to jump out in the rain and use my hands and, and get all the sand away from the right hand skid which had sunk right in and eventually I got it airborne and hovered up and sat beside the jungle and about 10 minutes later the monsoon front went through and in front of me was this enormous cliff, a headland that I would have run straight into. So talk about lucky. And then later that day I was flying along and I'd looked at my chart and I thought, look, if I just head out to sea, I was once again in really heavy rain, I'll miss hitting anything. And then eventually I got out of the rain and looked to the left of me was the mountain range, which is Burma. And I thought, oh, that's good. You know, I've been well through the mountain range. Then I looked to the right and there were some islands above my altitude. So I could have run straight into an island. And the mats were so fluid in those days and there wasn't anything as terrain awareness warding system. And so I was very, very lucky as well as having good equipment. It's, yeah, I'm sitting here glad I'm sitting in the, in the office chair at the moment and sort of just picturing that. And, uh, yeah, it's much nicer yeah. to, to picture it than uh, to experience it. So I think, look, there's so many things here. You've got a trip to the North Pole and, you know, as you said, you've, got the Charles, you've been awarded the Charles Lindbergh Award, uh, so many things. But um, just with the time, I do want to cover your time at um, at CAA and, and CASA and then some recent Part 61 things too. So I, I guess I did my fixed-wing training through Archfield in probably 90 uh, 697 and you know student pilot was probably just focused on flying didn't yep. really pay that much attention to what was happening outside regulatory things but you know your name obviously came up quite a few things and there's sort of different detractors and things but yes. do you want to describe i guess what were you trying to achieve like you know oh certainly what i was trying to achieve in aviation and i basically failed and that's to the detriment of the aviation industry in australia it's nearly destroyed general aviation nearly destroyed see i had to very successful businesses, one Dick Smith Electronics and the other one Australian Geographic. And they were successful. I made tens of millions of dollars. I sold one for over 20 million and the other one for over 40 million. And I just simply went around the world and copied the best. And by copying the best, you look for the least expensive way of achieving the result. And in aviation, I realized that Australia could be the leader in the world in flying, training, in recreational aviation. We could just be unbelievably, the weather is so fantastic, the conditions are great, we don't have big mountain ranges, we don't have winters like America or the Northern Hemisphere, and I just thought, won't that be fantastic? And so I managed to get myself appointed as chairman of the Civil Aviation Authority, it was called at the time, but what I didn't realize is the absolute ignorance of most Aussies, and that is that most Aussies don't ask advice. And I remember being on the board and on the CASA board, and the first thing I said was, look, let's send someone off to the United States and, the, and Europe to see how they do it. And everyone looked at me as if I was completely mad. Why would you want to do that? And I said, well, for a start, that's where all the aircraft are made, and also they do things better. 
And initially, I had some great success. I saved hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, we bought the staff from 7,000 to 3,500. But generally speaking, most people who resisted my changes were people from the industry. Everyone thought it was the regulator, and it certainly is the regulator now that's sort of run by the military and resists all change, and we can talk about that with Part 61. But the in those days... I managed to get some quite amazing changes in. For example, helicopters no longer had to operate as fixed-wing aircraft. I managed to get the Victor lane in, uh, and so you could fly past Sydney. That was all copying what I'd experienced when I flew around the world. The helicopter lanes in Sydney were copied from the helicopter lanes in London that I flew in. And But what I found interesting was uh, most people, most Aussies don't want to ask advice, and... In the early days of Dick Smith Electronics, I used to say to my wife, look, don't worry, we should be concerned because we're making a lot of money at the moment, but someone's going to copy us and they'll have half the business. But no one ever did. And it's very much the same today when I talk to aviation people and say, look, all you have to do is go around the world and find someone who does it in a less expensive way and then copy that rule because you must make sure it gives the required level of safety, then you will be the best in the world. Now, that hasn't happened, of course, and so now we have an industry that's almost completely destroyed. Yeah, I think the general feeling at the moment is we'd be happy just to pick up the you know, US rules and just plonk them in Australia. Yeah. But... yeah, but it wasn't at the time. And in fact, you wouldn't want to pick up the total US rules because some of them are disadvantageous to us. For example, every instrument approach in America is in a minimum of class echo controlled airspace, and that's very expensive. Our pilots are experienced at doing separating themselves, so at the less busy airports, you would keep the Australian system. So my attitude to copying was exactly what I did in business. had a few ideas of my own that I knew were better, but then copy the best from anywhere. And... In the UK, they have some really good ideas in some things. Generally speaking, most of their ideas are 50 years out of date and very expensive. So you've just got to search the world and take the lowest cost that gives the required level of safety. And that's not what we've done, and it's why we've almost destroyed. In fact, we've almost done the opposite. We've harmonized with ACAO, and the International Civil Aviation organization is generally the most expensive way of doing everything and you'll go broke mainly it's african countries that are compliant with a ko countries like the united states they file the most differences the, the only responsibility you have is to file a difference and the u.s files the most differences because it's openly said we wouldn't have a viable general aviation industry if we followed a ko Dick, I know you've got to go, so just hang up and run when you need to. But I'll just... no, I've got, I'm okay with time. Oh, perfect. Uh, there's a recent meeting at Tamworth. Uh, a lot of the industry, you know, are you sort of hearing secondhand what happened there. Can you just give people just a quick update on uh, sort of what was discussed and what the outcome is from that meeting? Yeah, what's happening, look, luckily, um, it's all these old people. I'm 72 years of age, and virtually all of the people in aviation these days, if you go to these meetings, we're all in our 60s and 70s, whereas when I was young, in my 30s, there were all these young business people getting into flying. Now, they're not anymore. But luckily, there's a young bloke called Ben Morgan who's come along. He's in his 30s, and he's stirring up things, which is absolutely wonderful, and he's basically saying what others have said, and that is that you have to lower the costs. 
We had to break the recording here for a couple of minutes as Dick had to give another interview live on our Adelaide radio station. He's one very busy gent. Thankfully, though, he was keen to keep talking and we picked up again shortly after. While we're waiting for Dick to come back, what one should do is, is think about who you know that might enjoy listening to this episode and make a mental note to share it with them. You'll be helping keep these stories travelling around the globe. Something you might not know about Dick Smith is that he pulled off one of the biggest April Fool's jokes in Australian history. On April 1st, 1978, Dick towed a pretend Antarctic iceberg into Sydney Harbour to huge media attention and and crowds along the shore. Unfortunately, though, halfway through the the trip through the harbour, it started to, to rain and it washed off the shaving cream and fire extinguisher foam, revealing the hoax for what it was, and the, the game was up. Yes, look, what uh, Ben Morgan was talking about is something called Part 61 here in Australia, which I, I'm a bit to blame for because I started the reform process. Believe it or not, it was 25 years ago, and the reform process was started simply to remove every unnecessary cost. It was quite simple. That was the instruction my board gave back in the Civil Aviation Authority days. Now, it was supposed to take about two years. We were fundamentally going to follow the US FARs because it's pretty clear they have the lowest cost system, and that's the reason they have a general aviation industry that's more viable than any other country in the world. But unfortunately, when I finished my term at the CIA and left, very quickly a change was made where instead of going to the lowest cost, they basically moved to, in effect, harmonizing with the highest cost. And that's because the Civil Aviation Act actually says that primacy, the, 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 the primacy must be given to safety and doesn't mention cost. And so you have bureaucrats who say, oh, in that case, we have to be the safest in the world and we can disregard cost. Now, if you do that, you end up without a viable aviation industry, at least without a general aviation industry that's viable. The airlines, it doesn't matter too much because if you waste something like $200 million a year in unnecessary expensive regulations... Because we have 100 million airline passengers, if that money was wasted in the airline industry, that would be about $2 per ticket, and it's hardly noticeable. If you've got a couple hundred people on an aeroplane, you've probably got a high level of of safety in in terms of equipment and fitting. Yes, but but I'm, I'm talking about wasting it where you actually are not spending it effectively, and we certainly do that in the airline side, but because it's such a small amount, it's not going to affect the market. However, with general aviation, if you waste 20 or $30 million, if you misallocate that amount of money, you will completely destroy an industry, especially the Australian industry because it's so small. Now, Part 61 is a good example. We've had absolutely no safety problems coming from the licensing system. Ours is already more expensive than the United States. For example, in the United States, they have the tick the box question and answer way, which is criticized all around the world. But it's amazing. They end up with basically the highest safety general aviation system in the world in the USA, despite the terrible weather conditions and the high mountain ranges they have and 30 and something like 30 times the traffic density. 
But in Australia, we have a, a written type answer question, which is a lot more difficult to, uh, more expensive to run the exam system and to examine and to give the points and so forth. But that's just one example. With Part 61, the licensing system, uh, up until last year, I would do two biannuals, one in my citation and one in my helicopter. Now, in the United States, you would do one biannual. In fact, if you were flying single pilot in a jet, you would just do one every 12 months, your single pilot renewal, and that would cover all other biannual reviews. Now in Australia, I have to do four. I have to do one in the twin-engine helicopter, one in the single-engine helicopter, one in the citation, and also one in my uh, my trike, my microlight aircraft. So I have to do four. And that's because they bought in a new Part 61, where in effect they copied the most expensive in the world. And my examiner, instead of being able to examine me, say, in my citation, but he himself having done his renewal in a Falcon 20 or Falcon 200 or whatever it is, now has to, in effect, do the renewal in every different aircraft that he tests in. So the cost has gone up dramatically when there was no safety issue to be addressed. And that's because you basically have a Civil Aviation Safety Authority here, which is run by the military, and they've never paid for anything. And they are very well-meaning, hard-working, competent people, but it's beyond comprehension when you say, look, if you even add $2,000 to the cost of a small GA business, you're going to normally take away safety somewhere else. They won't buy new aircraft. They won't grow. They will sell their business or close down, and that's what's happening. We used to be leaders in the world in flying training. Now there's very little flying training going on here. And that to me is criminal. I guess there's the issue then too, that testing officer has to have those checks and be current and all those machines that you're going to have less testing officers available for the individual types. Absolutely right. And so what's happened now, CASA is now giving dispensations. In other words, they bring in a ridiculous rule and give dispensations. And they should have just immediately said, this is an incredible catastrophe. Now, what CASA says is, says, oh, the implementation hasn't been good. No, it's not the implementation. It's the law itself is just a catastrophe. And it's basically the same people at CASA who are still there now who bought this in, and now a fortune is being spent in trying to fix changes that didn't address any known safety issue. And so... And that's just the start of it. It's happening with everything. They work on airspace. We wanted to bring in the American Unicom system where any person at an airport can give weather information and traffic information on the CTAF. In Australia, they said, no, if you're going to give any traffic information or weather information, you have to have held an air traffic control license in the last X years. And so instead of having a Unicom at an airport operating at virtually no charge, we now it costs us up to $400,000 a year to fly in retired air traffic controllers to places like Ayers Rock to operate the Unicom. And so everything is like that. It's just a one-way ratchet of increasing costs and destroying a once viable general aviation industry. 
All right, Dick, so, so where to from here then? And, and people well, who I've are told in people industry. to get out. I've, I've told people to get out. I said, if you're... I don't see any light on the horizon. Mark Skidmore has a, an appointment, I think, five years altogether. And I don't see any light on the horizon at all, so I've advised everyone get out of aviation. The quicker you get out, the quicker the minister will do something whilst people are battling on. And many people are running businesses and just earning wages. Now, that's terrible. You should be doing really well if you're running an aviation business. To give you an example, the current government which is in, it's called the Coalition, which is a coalition of the Liberal, it's a conservative government, like the uh, Republicans in America, and the National Party, which is sort of represents people in the country, in the, away from the cities. Now, they had a policy, the election before last, when they didn't get in, of Australia becoming a leader in the world in flight training. The amazing thing was when they did get elected at the last election, I went to the National Party said, this is fantastic. You're, it's normally the National Party of the Coalition who is the Minister for Aviation, the Minister for Transport, we call the person. And I got out the policy to find that someone had removed the policy statement of becoming the leading leader in the world in flight training and they'd removed it. Obviously, some bureaucrat had done that, so they didn't have to be accountable for anything. So we now have the coalition of the conservatives in charge, normally would be pro-business, but they are so completely useless, or have been in the past, that they are completely destroying country aviation for a start and much of general aviation in the city areas. And that's why I'm saying get out now, otherwise you will lose more. The only light on the horizon is that maybe we have a brand new minister and maybe he will do something. And this meeting at Tamworth, organised by the young Ben Morgan in his 30s, at last has communicated to the government that you cannot not look at cost. You have to just concentrate all the time on removing costs. Otherwise, we won't have an industry. All right, so we have to see how that all pans out. And then you've got the, the GAA um, airfields around Australia too are being uh, sort of squeezed by property developers, which is probably a, uh, another sort of issue for, for city flying. Yeah, well, there's a certain warning there for the United States. So the United States is a free enterprise country, but it, it's, very, it's quite socialistic when it comes to aviation. It's funded by the Federal Aviation Authority. They even fund airports. And they have an interest in keeping airports operating, which is incredibly important for national security, I would have thought. And having many young pilots being trained, we're going to be getting our airline pilots shortly from China, without any doubt, because we're not training enough. And that's the madness. Now, what they did here is they sold the airports off, and many of the organizations paid far too much for them, and then are trying to get a return, and they are in effect, closing runways and putting up uh, shops and retail centres and nothing to do with aviation at all. And it would be a bit similar to someone buying a park and then thinking, oh, look, I'm not making much money as a park, so I'll turn it into an industrial estate. Well, that would be ridiculous. And so what should have been made clear, and in fact, I think it was in the legislation that if you buy an airport, like, say, Jandicott Airport, you can only use it as an airport with aviation-related activities, and you cannot start selling off the land or leasing the land, in this case, to have factories and shopping centres, because that's not what the airport's about. What about your own flying these days, Dick? Are you still, what's your current machine? 
I fly all the time. I've got, I'm very spoiled. I have so many machines I would, I'm not even going to tell you. But helicopter-wise, I have a, a jet ranger under the bedroom here at home at Terry Hills. And then in the backyard, I have a hangar with my Augusta 109E. It's a Augusta Power, beautiful machine. So I basically use the Augusta, which I fly. I fly all the time, two or three times a week. I flew the Augusta on Friday out to Bankston Airport and then jumped into my citation and flew down to Tasmania. And then we ordered, uh, then we chartered a uh, helicopter there and flew down to some land I have down on the East Coast. And then back again, then I flew the citation back last night. I fly that single pilot and then jumped into the Augusta and flew home from Bankston Airport to my house. It's about 12 minutes flying time. Uh, I also have a, a long ranger, but my daughter, she flies and she's using that at the moment. But my wife and myself next month will head out to Outback Australia. We do a trip once a year in the Long Ranger. It's air-conditioned and just a great machine for heading out to Western Australia, to the desert country. I'm following where the early explorers found early waterholes, which, of course, were Aboriginal waterholes. And I go to the Aboriginal settlements and I take the Aboriginal people out and we relocate the waterholes and we get the white man's name, which was the explorer's name, and then also the Aboriginal name because they've been using them for tens of thousands of years. Uh, and as well as that, I have a Cessna Caravan, which is my adventure machine. It's been twice around the world. I recently flew it to the Kimberley and back, and it's second to a helicopter. In fact, I was flying a Sikorsky helicopter that I bought counterclockwise around the world from my house here at Terry Hills and back to the house over about a 12-month period. And when I was in Nepal, I saw this Cessna caravan and thought, gee, that'd be almost as good as a helicopter, but a lot less expensive. Because as you probably know, a, a Sikorsky S76 oh, yeah, requires four hours of routine maintenance for every one hour flying. But And I took a mechanic with me, so we had our own maintenance the way we went. So since then, I've bought the caravan, been twice around the world in it, and it's a great adventure machine. We have opening windows for taking photographs. Um, it's just the most wonderful long-distance machine. I have special tanks that fit on the seat rails, and it has a 2,400 nautical mile range. So you can go from Hilo to Monterey and basically do all of the long segments around the world. Dick, if we got time to finish on one last story, you were the first person to, to fly into uh, the Peninsula Hotel uh, Hong Kong helipad. I, think, I was just going to wonder, how did that come about? It came about because as a young person, I went around the world as a backpacker and my scoutmaster had given me this ticket and he also shouted me a night at the Peninsula Hotel. So that was 1966. I didn't have any money. I was unskilled. I thought I was a failure. And after that, I opened my business and... I did quite well and bought a helicopter, flew around the world. And when I flew into Hong Kong on the world flight, I was told that Michael Kaduri, whose family owned the Peninsula Hotel, was a helicopter enthusiast. So I became a friend of Michael. He's now Sir Michael Kaduri, and he'd be a great person to do a, an interview with because he, I think he's still the Hughes agent or what, what do they call the company now? It's not his anymore, the helicopters. Um, anyway, uh, the, what's the notar? What company yeah, makes McDonald, the notar? McDonald Douglas. Radio McDonald Douglas. Well, I think he's still, I think, maybe the agent for Hong Kong, and he's got the notar, and he keeps it in his house in Repulse Bay. Imagine that. And we take off from the tennis court, and he flies me around. Now, he rebuilt the Peninsula Hotel, put in the towers at the back, and put two fantastic helipads on the top. And because I'd met him during my flight around the world, he said, Dick, would you come up and... 
open the Clipper Lounge for me, which on the very top of the Peninsula Hotel is this wonderful Clipper Lounge, which is based on the Pan Am flying boats that flew around the world in the 30s. And coupled up with opening the Clipper Lounge, I flew in on the first flight with the Director of Civil Aviation. He actually opened the helipad, and then I went downstairs and opened the Clipper Lounge. And uh, Michael now is Sir Michael Kaduri and runs a very successful business in Hong Kong, but is still a, an avid helicopter pilot. Uh, and, and by the way, the, the other thing I should mention, you did ask about me flying under the Harbour Bridge uh, in Sydney. No, that was not without approval. When I uh, was nearly finished the flight from America to Australia, I got my wife to ring up the Civil Aviation, or it was called the Department of Aviation in those days, and say, look, could Dick fly under the Harbour Bridge when he comes in to land at Darling Harbour? First of all, they said no, and then they said, oh, it would be creating a precedent. So I said, well, look, tell them, if you fly from America to Australia solo in a helicopter, you can fly under the Harbour Bridge. And so they said that and they gave me approval to. And so I got that approval to fly under the Harbour Bridge quite legally. And that was quite fantastic. It's in the documentary film I made, which, by the way, I do have some DVDs and I'm going to put it onto YouTube. So it will be available in the next few months. The three documentaries are flying around the world and also the documentary of flying to the North Pole. Well, I'll get links for those things and uh, put them all in the show notes with this episode. And Wonderful. Any, uh, any any upcoming uh, aviation venture we should be keeping an eye out uh, from you? Oh, well, I'm looking at doing a, a flight around the Southern Hemisphere. They've just opened an airport at, uh, at uh, St. Helena, which is where Napoleon was holed up. He was sent in disgrace to St. Helena by the British, and he died there. It's an island south of Ascension Island. And in my flights around the world, I've been to Ascension Island in the Atlantic, but never to St. Helena. Now that this airport's been opened, I think it must have been opened in the last few weeks or pretty close to being opened, I'm thinking of doing a flight maybe in the Cessna caravan but could be in the Citation and, and from Sydney to Easter Island and then across South America to St. Helena, then through Africa, probably Cocos Island and back to Sydney. And it would be a flight around the world remaining totally in the Southern Hemisphere and that hasn't yet been done since... I orbited the South Pole in my twin otter. That was a very quick flight around the world in the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> Fair enough. I didn't know about that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today, uh, Dick. You know, lots of adventures there, and um, and definitely thanks for the update too for Part 61. And it's, it's wonderful to be talking to you and to be knowing that there are helicopter pilots all around the world who are enthusiastic like I am about the most mag wonderful magic carpet in the world or as I call it, call it here, the, the ultimate off-road machine. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Good on you, mate. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Dick. Cheers. Bye-bye. Dick filmed much of his first flight around the world, and it was turned into a, a documentary by the BBC. Unfortunately, the film isn't available anymore through official channels. Someone has uploaded a VHS copy to YouTube just in the last month. If you look for it there... There's no guarantee that will be there forever. It's quite spectacular, the scenery. And in one part, Dick has to put down on Baffin Island due to poor weather and sleep under the helicopter. He complains the next morning that he hardly got any sleep due to the, the noise of the icebergs crashing nearby. And due to weight restrictions, he couldn't take a heater with him as he crossed the Atlantic via Greenland in the Bell 206. There's also a book about the journey titled Earth Beneath Me, but again, it's so long ago now, it's no longer in print. 
Uh, however, there's a couple of secondhand copies floating around on Amazon or eBay if you go looking for it. The title there was Earth Beneath Me. If you're thinking about coming to Australia to do your helicopter training, you might be put off by some of the things that Dick talked about and be having you know, second thoughts. I just want to chip in, though, with a, a bit of commentary there and that I believe Dick is really talking about the profitability of running an aviation company and a general aviation company, especially in Australia at the moment, rather than the quality or the attractiveness as a destination to do your a license. So Australia is still an awesome place to learn to fly for many of the other reasons that he spoke about. Unless, of course, you want to do high-altitude mountain course, we just don't have the mountains that the rest of the world has. A plug for World Helicopter Day on the 21st of August 2016. If you want to register a barbecue or an open day or another event at your organization, then please visit worldhelicopterday.com. And if you'd like to volunteer any time towards helping coordinate the day, then there are a lot of little jobs that need to get done, and the help would be really appreciated. And you can drop a line to hello at worldhelicopterday.com, and that would be awesome to have a few more people involved and really get the ball rolling on that. This episode was sponsored by trainmorepilots.com, a place where you can get help with marketing for your aviation business or flight school. Today's quick marketing tip is about Facebook Live. This is the Facebook feature that allows you to live stream video to your Facebook page from a smartphone. It's similar to Periscope or Meerkat, which are other apps uh, that allow live streaming, but obviously being built into, into Facebook itself means that a lot more people are going to see these videos. One idea that you could try is you could live stream a walk around your company building and your hangars and the aircraft and give people a look behind the scenes and you can answer questions from people watching live and interacting with you. When you're finished, the save video becomes available on Facebook, just like any other video that you would upload. And a final pro tip is that you can then embed that video on your in a blog post or a page on your website to get even more people to be able to see it and reuse that content on your actual website itself, which means that you can keep it fresh and current. It's pretty cool, huh? Hey, would you like to improve your flying skills? And then the second most, I think, important thing to stop um, accidents is the ability to say no. That was the number two thing to keep yourself safe. But wouldn't you like to know the number one thing? Yeah, I thought you might. So you'll have to listen in to the next episode of the Rotary Wing Show, where we chat with someone that does well over a thousand touchdown autos a year and has built up one of the most respected check and training organizations in the industry. I'm Mick Cullen. Thanks for hanging out. It's been fun. Catch you soon. <laughs>